The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 37 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government, and nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before we get started, I want to remind our listeners that you can go online to the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So lots of great feedback on last week's show with Ernst & Young's William Beer. William is a partner over there at EY Cybersecurity Advisory, and he's based out of their New York field office. We had a great conversation around digital transformation and how rampant the digital transformation effort is across the entire industry. And we all know the introduction of any technology into your environment has to be secure. So it's imperative that cybersecurity play a major role in any digital transformation, preferably as an enabler and not a blocker or an obstacle. And William has a lot of interesting things to say about his observations across the industry. So he gets around, he's a partner with one of the big four, he's a great guy, he's a good friend of mine, and he's super, super smart. So if you missed last week's show, don't forget to check it out. Partner with EY's Cybersecurity Advisory Services, William Beer, on episode number 36 of Task Force 7 Radio. So how do you listen to last week's episode, you ask? Well, I'll tell you. You can find Task Force 7 Radio on a total of nine different playback mediums, including iTunes.com, Google Play, TuneIn.com, Stitcher.com, Player.fm, Overcast.fm, ListenNotes.com, the show's very own website at TaskForce7Radio.com, and of course the number one internet talk radio producer in the world at VoiceAmerica.com. So on all, nine different options to get your TF7 radio fixed. We're everywhere, folks. You can't miss us. If you Google Task Force 7 Radio, you get all your options. Check us out, TF7 Radio Playback, at your convenience, 24-7, 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, please, please don't forget to subscribe. So tonight we're going to have a great show. we got Tom Pager on the show with us tonight. Many of you know Tom, he's a frequent guest on the show, and from time to time he appears as a co-host of Task Force 7 Radio. He just took a new position as the Chief Security Officer of BitCo. I'm not sure if we'll be able to get into that too much with him tonight, because we won't be talking about cryptocurrencies or blockchain tonight, because I want to talk to him about how important risk is in the cybersecurity space. This isn't a transition that everyone's really made yet, and there's a lot of discussion about it. Uh, in the industry, there's, there's lots to talk about in regards to what models work the best and how you should go about implementing risk-based decisioning and models in your organization. So I think it's going to be a great discussion, and he's a great guy to tap into about this because he's got a lot of experience in the space. Tom is formerly the CSO and CRO of Newstar. He has more than 15 years of experience in security and risk management both, both in both domains. Prior to Newstar, Tom served as the CRO and CISO of DocuSign where he designed, implemented, and managed its successful enterprise risk and security departments. Prior to DocuSign, Tom served as the deputy CISO of JPMorgan Chase, where he led cybersecurity fraud prevention and protective intelligence in the global security and investigations department. So prior to JPMorgan Chase, Tom was the head of risk assessments and director of emerging risk and fraud controls at Visa, where he assisted in the launch of the Payment Card Industry Security Standards Council. So additionally, Tom served as a special agent with the United States Secret Service. We served at the same time there in that great agency, where he established the San Francisco Electronic Crimes Task Force. 
He was also responsible for identifying, apprehending, and successfully extraditing leaders of a large organized crime ring in the Eastern Bloc. And of course, like all Secret Service agents, Tom has also provided physical security for the President of the United States, the Vice President, their families, and other foreign heads of state. So stay tuned, everyone. Tom Pager up on the second and third segments of the show. But first, some cybersecurity news and analysis. Well, it seems the money just continues to pour into cybersecurity companies. We talked about this in a, a, a few episodes ago about how much money was actually really pouring in to cybersecurity over the next few years. It, the numbers are really astronomical. The projections are huge, and they seem to be keeping pace with, uh, with what's, what's really happening in, in the industry and with, with, with the budgets, not only in the private sector, but with the government as well. But it seems to be pouring into established cybersecurity companies at a considerably astounding rate, right? So, so this is a business show that, where we were on the business channel, right? So Task Force 7 is on the business channel at Voice America. So, so let's talk some cybersecurity business, all right? Consider this. Just three companies, just three, Silence, Carbon Black, and CrowdStrike have raised $800 million between them. <laughs> $800 million invested in just three companies. Man, that's a boatload of cash, folks. And it doesn't seem to have any end in sight. I mean, recently, Carbon Black uh, went public with an IPO in May that rallied the company's shares 26% above the IPO price on their first day of trading. They had a great day. They had a first great day. And I guess they closed at $23.94 a share on a volume of 8.1 million shares. So... There was a lot to talk about the company being squarely in unicorn territory. And if you don't know what that means, it means Carbon Black belongs into an elite group of public and private companies, in this case, some cybersecurity uh, companies that, whose value exceeds $1 billion. All right, so very cool group to belong to. Love to belong to that group one day, the unicorn group. So the Unicorn Group is, is a nice company to be in, right? On Friday, Carbon Black stock closed at $26.14, up a little bit from their one-day rally in May, and they seem to be doing very, very well. So congratulations to them. So in January earlier this year, the Wall Street Journal reported Silence was quickly scaling and driven by demand for AI-based cybersecurity products two years after it raised funding at a speculation of a billion-dollar valuation. Now, the company generated more than $100 million in 2017 revenue, which was a 177% increase year-over-year, pegging its uh, 2016 revenue at about $36 million. So that's like $36 million in 2016 to $100 million in 2017. Wow, that's huge. So at the time, the Wall Street Journal was reporting that there was at least 10 private security companies uh, that raised venture financing at a valuation of $1 billion or more. So then, last week, it's when the real news is going to hit here, right? Reuters, and a whole bunch of other places, reported that both Silence and CrowdStrike, who are rival cybersecurity uh, startup companies, vying for a huge chunk of the surging security industry, announced huge funding rounds on the same day, the same day. Now, that's just, that's very strange, in my opinion. These are huge, huge rounds, an enormous amount of effort goes into this, but they were announced on the same day. So two Monmouth cybersecurity companies battling it out in what seems like a full-fledged cybersecurity version of an Avatar cage match. Huge rounds. So CrowdStrike, a California-based firm f- uh, founded in 2011 said it raised $200 million in its Series E round of financing, putting the company's valuation at more than $3 billion. So its rival, Silence, founded in 2012, said it raised $120 million also in its Series E, or fifth round of funding, but declined to disclose the company's valuation, which I thought was really interesting, right? They're keeping it close to the vest over there at Silence. But I've seen estimates that, you know, puts them well over the billion-dollar mark, but who knows? I mean, it's just speculation. You read all kinds of stuff on the Internet, right? So, but uh, look, they're making tons of money, <laughs> right? 
These companies are making tons of money. This is big business, folks. You know, so there's a lot of interesting things about these companies, too. So both firms, which provide software against cyber attacks, were fund, are founded by ex-McAfee employees who are now fierce competitors, right? So George Kurtz is the chief executive officer of, of CrowdStrike, and Stuart McClure is the chief executive officer of Silence. They both sold Foundstone, a cybersecurity company they had co-founded together to McAfee in 2004 for $86 million. So these two guys uh, were partners. Uh, they co-founded a company. They sold it to McAfee. They both worked for McAfee, I believe. They sold it in 2004 for $86 million. And now they started their companies in 2011 and 2012, respectively, CrowdStrike in 2011 and Silence in 2012. And their fierce competitors raising hundreds of millions of dollars with huge valuations. It's big business, baby. Big business. So CrowdStrike's Series E round of financing was led by General Atlantic, SL, and IVP, with participation from existing investors Capital G, an investment arm of Google parent company Alphabet, and March Capital Partners. Silence's funding round was led by Blackstone Tactical Opportunities, with participation from other unnamed investors, Silence said. Interesting. Other unnamed investors in this $120 million round, right? Previous investors include Kosla Ventures, KKR and Company, and Insight Venture Partners. So it's interesting that the two takes that these, these two companies have, you know, the approaches that they have in terms of how much they raised, who was involved in the, in the, in the, in the round, uh, what they're going to do for the future, and things like that. So keeping consistent with that, Kurtz said in an interview with Reuters that an initial public offering is, quote, certainly an option we continue to evaluate, adding that he's seen growing interest from public and institutional investors in, in his company, in CrowdStrike. So in May, Kurtz told CNBC that there's a possibility that a company such as Amazon or Google could be interested in CrowdStrike's cloud-delivered security capabilities. Now, in, in contrast, McClure, who is the CEO of Silence, was not immediately available for comment. <laughs> Very interesting. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on LinkedIn by searching at Task Force 7 Radio and on Facebook, Twitter, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio. For any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, as well as other business communications, please email me directly at george.redis at taskforce7radio.com. That's george.redis at taskforce7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier site Cybersecurity Professional Network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together. I promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause with some quick messages from our sponsors and then we'll be right back with our special guest, the new Chief Security Officer of BitGo, Tom Pagler, coming right up after these short messages. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. 
Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for the keywords voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to facebook.com forward slash voice America or search for voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm here with our special guest and sometimes co-host of Task Force 7 Radio, former Secret Service agent and current Chief Security Officer of BitGo, Mr. Thomas Pagler. Tom, welcome to the show. Hey, George. Thanks for having me back. Always a pleasure. Great, great. It's great to have you, as always. So, yeah, well, first of all, congrats on the new position with BitGo. We need to go over that. <laughs> hey, thanks. It's uh, pretty exciting. I've uh, been there about a month. Um, definitely drinking from the fire hose, a, a great space, uh, you know, working in uh, – blockchain, public ledgers, cryptocurrency, uh, and actually uh, in charge of securing it. Uh, so it's a, it's, a, it's a wallet that's used to uh, make sure that the uh, currency is out there, is uh, secured. Maybe a future show, I can go a little bit more in depth on that. Yeah, definitely. We want to have you back to talk about that. So in addition to this and all the other things you've done in your career, I know that you're on the advisory board for Carnegie Mellon's CISO program, and now the CRO program as well. And you te- do you teach there as, as well, or do you just on the, on the advisory boards? I still teach at both. Uh, so CRO stands for Chief Risk Officer Program. And uh, actually, I'm, I'm going to be teaching this Wednesday there, a little small class. Nice. And, you know, it focuses on uh, risk and ranking risk and making sure you identify them and properly, properly mitigate them. So, you know, information security, focused on actual information security, implementing controls to secure your environment, and risk more identifying and helping. Cool, cool. So today, today I want to talk about how we incorporate risk management into cybersecurity. This is something that you're very familiar with, and I, I think you've held CSO and CRO positions at the same time in several different companies, sometimes CSO position, sometimes a CRO, maybe sometimes both. So you're a great person to speak about this because you have a lot of experience in this space. So how, how is it that someone has been able to hold both risk and security positions, sometimes even at the same time in the same organization? How did that work out for you? I think the same time makes a lot of sense. Uh, and I think we're going to talk a little bit more as to why uh, the risk approach to security is so important as we go through the show. But really, when you have both the chief risk officer and chief security officer title, it really appeals both internally and externally uh, to everybody, all the stakeholders, because you're really saying, I understand the risks. I understand that we have multiple risks. I understand that we have limited resources. But what we're going to do is prioritize and go after those top risks. And as a security head, I'm going to make sure that everyone understands these and take the necessary steps to secure ourselves. All right. So let's start out with the basics, right? So why should cybersecurity professionals focus on risk management? I mean, we hear a lot about it. And I think, you know, a lot of organizations still really haven't made that transition into a risk-based approach. What's so important about the role of risk in the cybersecurity space? I think with cybersecurity, we're growing every day. I mean, just in, in general, information technology is growing. So we have more and more uh, devices going online, more and more processes getting automated, more things moving into a technology, you know, I don't want to just say cloud because it could be anything, it could be a you know, device, a handheld, an IoT de- uh, device, it could be something in the cloud, it could be something on-prem, but there's more and more every day 
for a CISO, a CSO to actually secure. So I think taking a risk-based approach is a great way to really understand and get your playbook together. So what is the most important thing I need to protect or my company? And if I have so many resources, we, we're all limited on resources. You can only have as much as you can bring in revenue-wise or what makes sense to run the business. So if you say, okay, well, the most important thing for me is X, I'm going to put most of my resources into protecting that. And then I'm going to put other resources into other areas to make sure I do the best I can with the resources I have. Kind of putting a playbook together. Same thing as when you're playing any professional sport. You have, you know, salary caps, you have this, you have that. So you're going to say, okay, I'm going to invest in this area because this is what's important. We're going to be, a, you know, an offense team. We're going to do this. Uh, we're going to, you know, put a line around uh, the quarterback, save him. This is what we're going to do. Other teams might say, you know what, we're going we're to be a strong defense. We're going to make sure no one scores on us and then invest in that way. So it's a way of really understanding what is the culture here? What are we doing? What's our playbook? And then um, actually work in the playbook, making sure everyone understands. How important it is, and you and I talk about this a lot, how important is it to understand the capabilities of your adversary when you're assessing risk to your business? I think it's really important. So some of the things uh, that are really important is making sure that you have a risk framework that you follow. Uh, one of them that I recommend is COSO. It's a, um, it's a committee of sponsoring organizations. Uh, I think it's five independent private sector organizations that come together and they basically give you frameworks and guidance for enterprise risk management, internal controls, and like fraud deterrence. And the, the idea there is it's a pretty standardized likelihood and impact. So if I think, let's just say <clears throat> I'm protecting my mail, and right now the likelihood of something happening against my mail, I'm just not fished a lot, my brand's not well known, I'm a company that's smaller. So the likelihood's pretty low, it's still something gonna happen, uh, impact not too much because we're not using, you know, maybe the people on mail, we don't have a lot of employees, we kind of know everybody, you know, smaller company. Company starts growing, and the, um, brand gets bigger. Now the likelihood goes up because it, people know who we are. The impact's greater because there's more employees to protect. And now let's say that I learned that my adversaries are actually specifically targeting the industry I'm in. Let's just say I'm in manufacturing and we know there's a fish campaign going right now to take over uh, manufacturing uh, terminals or something like that. Now my likelihood really significantly went up. So I need to know what my adversaries are doing to make sure I'm properly identifying, addressing, and ranking my risks. So I think, you know, one of the most important things managers need to do once they identify the risks of their business is determine which ones are the most important. And the way you just described it, you know, using uh, this, this COSO method. But I think, I think it's really important because we need to know which risk introduced the greatest amount of instability and security to our business. And there's a several different factors that go into that. How do you think people in the cybersecurity industry are doing in respect to risk ranking the, the, the risk prioritizing the risk to their business. What do you see? I think you can see who's doing well and who's not. And here's how, do they have a formal risk security compliance, privacy, something like that council where they're bringing other business leaders together and do they have some kind of risk register? Do they have something that's identifying and tracking the risk? Cause that's, what's really key there. You need to say, Hey, everybody in the business, cause security has got to be owned by everybody, everybody in the business. Here's kind of the framework we do to identify risks. So tell me, because as a security expert, I need to understand the business to know how to secure it. So if I go to all my you know, VPs of engineering, my heads of marketing, everywhere, legal, compliance, wherever it is, I need to talk to and say, hey, what keeps you up at night? What's important to you? I could start saying, okay, you know, let's start putting risks in here. So they can start putting risks into there. So if I'm a you know, product head, I can say one of my risks is... Um, uh, you know, uh, the, the firewalls don't have uh, two people looking at them, right? One single person to chart firewalls, right? So there's no uh, separation of duties or something like that. So that's a risk. And then they can kind of, we walk them through, how do you um, determine likelihood and impact? It means us showing them how it works. So we're, we're relying on business owners to identify the risk, come bring them to us, and then we kind of help review with them and rank them. Uh, you know, again, the mail example, maybe someone who's running the mail servers could say, hey, um, you know, we have email, everybody uses it, not a lot of phishing going on. Now there's an uptick. So that, you know, basically everybody coming together, we all can transparently see this risk register. So let's just say there's 500 risks on there. Uh, we have funds that we know can probably address, let's say a hundred of them, or, you know, by quarter, we kind of get an idea what we're doing. Then we have a group come together. We call it the risk council, security council. What do you want? Where all these heads come together and you go through the top risks and you say, okay, here's our top risk. Here's the funds. Here's how we're going to do it. Who owns it? And how do you report back? The other thing you should be doing in this, if you're really mature, is you should be making sure you're reviewing your policies and procedures throughout the company to make sure that they actually address 
what you perceive as risk and, and enable everybody to take the proper steps. So as you say, here's how we're going to address this, make sure the policy procedure is updated to make sure you do that going forward. And that, I've seen lots of um, CISOs and others do this, and I think that those are the ones who are pretty successful because things are going to happen. You're going to have incidents, like just too much to secure. Things are gonna, things happen every day. But when you can go and say, yep, this happened. Here's how we responded. Here's how we mitigated. We knew it wasn't a top risk. Even though this happened, we knew the impact would be small, which it is. Here's how we're doing it. And you can also, then people can transparently see. And by the way, we kept, you know, the, the secret sauce. Um, if you know, Kentucky Fried Chicken, my 11 herbs and spices are safe. We might have lost some of our, you know, ketchup packets out of the store. We didn't care about those as much. We can replace those minimal costs. But this, the 11 herbs and spices our competitors would want is not um, available. That's how you do it. So is, isn't this whole process really important when it comes to budget planning? I mean, and, and it doesn't have to be in cycle with the, with, with the budget planning process for the, for the next year. I mean, because if you're, if you're determining where your weakest spots are and then you're comparing it to where your adversary's strongest capabilities are, and then you kind of combine that together and you say, okay, maybe this is where we should pour the most money into. And then you can actually speak intelligently to the board. And, and by the way, this is a lot harder said than done, right? <laughs> this is not just, oh, we're just going to go do these couple exercises and we're going to, you know, you know, spin out this perfect, <laughs> perfect, you know, throughout the capability assessment. We're going to determine where we're going to put all our money. That's not, it's not that easy. Trust me. And I get that. But, but I mean, isn't it, this is like imperative to the, the budget planning process, is it not? I think you made two good points. One is it is difficult at first, but once a process is in place, it's, it's actually great because there's much more understanding by the business of what you're doing. You already have your funds kind of identified. And if you need to make a change, it's very clear why. And then to your point on the finance side, I make sure finance is represented in my risk and security councils. Um, the CFO, honestly, that's how high I want it. I want them to have a seat at it and, and then to understand but what I do is I also identify my finance business partner, whoever is helping me with my budget. So depending on your company, maybe you're doing monthly, uh, quarterly, whatever you're doing. The idea is that my finance officer understands the risk to his organization, how he or she, we're, we're, um, uh, we're covering those. And then my finance business partner understands my budget and understands if I have a change. So if, if we say this uh, quarter or this month, what we're planning to do is X, Y, Z, then we see the likelihood or impact of something changed and I go, Ooh, it's actually be W Y Z we're going to do. And W is a little bit more. Uh, we can adjust to that because they, it, there's no surprises and we have an idea and we have an explanation and we can go do those changes. And also the rest of the business can see it. And in some cases I might be able to get it funded by someone else. Cause if it's specifically a risk to product, a product team might say, well, honestly, this is too big a risk to us. We're going to have to put resources on. They might delay a project anyway to address it and it might just come out of their funds. So it's a really transparent way to work with budget and understand if it goes up or down or just impacts different areas. But it's a great way instead of kind of being in your vacuum and suddenly coming in saying, we need to make this change because now finance has been part of it the whole way and everybody else impacts. You said a key word there and that's transparent. You know, how important is transparency in this, in this effort, because as you know, in the, in the information security space, transparency sometimes is hard to come by. I mean, getting everybody to understand that transparency is a good thing um, in, in, in any type of planning, whether it's your strategic planning or any of your, your, your assessments and your identifying risk, whatever you're doing, it's good to be transparent in terms of making sure everybody's on the same page and all your ships are sailing in the same direction. So do you see a lot of transparency in the information security space? I actually think that's another good point you're bringing up, George, is uh, we need to change as security leaders from being the people in, in the basement, you know, hidden, who did things behind closed doors and right. people saw security and we're almost scared of them, right? I mean, they, they right. liked it. They knew we were doing something, but they didn't know what we were doing. And there might have been a fear of us, right? Because we might be the ones who go and do an internal investigation, things like that. If you go back to the days when you and I were secret service agents, right, we couldn't do that when it came to protection. Like when you're doing protection, you rely on local law enforcement. You have to be very transparent. You have to talk to them. You have to trust. You have to say, hey, my protectee's coming. I need your resources. Here's where I need them. Here's why. You know, you have to embrace and work with local, state resources. And the best way you do that is by being transparent and getting partners that you trust over years. And I think in private sector, we have to do that too. And I actually will get more upset with my teams if they 
are not transparent and, and causing blockers that way, then they accidentally say too much. Because, you know, every once in a while, they're being transparent. Maybe they said something to the finance person about an internal investigation they shouldn't have said. But, you know, and honestly, what they're trying to do is incorporate and, and, and trust each other. And we can, we can handle that as long as we have a strong relationship. So maybe something was said, shouldn't have been said. Yes, there's an issue. It's still a risk because now we have a privacy thing going. Maybe HR and legal are like, well, we shouldn't have told finance, but we, you know, we accidentally told them because we want them to know that these three people might be leaving. They can adjust their books. Then we can kind of bring them in, but we trust them anyway because we're trusting them with so much. You can build those, those strong, that strong trust and make people feel like we're transparent. We're part of it. And I think we have to adjust to security and do that and figure that out. And almost, like I said, deputize people in the other lines of business so they feel like they're part of security. And the more that they are part of security, the bigger our teams get. The same way, you know, my example with the Secret Service, when we're working with local law enforcement, you know, you can bring in all the agents you want, but at some point, you can, you know, it, it, you can only do so many. We have so many agents at a time. So let's expand that by, you know, getting the local um, police officers and, and uh, maybe other federal agencies, other agents from there and state that we trust and we get along with and we're transparent and then they become part of it. And now all of a sudden the secret service is five times as big as it should be. So once we identify these risks, we prioritize them, we risk rank them. And we talked a little bit about the governance framework. I mean, what does an effective security and risk governance and compliance framework look like? I mean, it's, it depends on the size of your organization, I, I would assume. But I mean, what the, in your mind, you know, what does that look like? I do recommend anybody who's looking at it, just go to uh, the COSO site. It's, it's COSO.org. Like I said, it's a nonprofit. They have lots of samples. It really does a risk ranking of likelihood versus impact. It's got numbering and, and everything like that. And it can easily convert into any kind of input. So maybe you're using a GRC tool or you're just using some kind of spreadsheet. The idea is you can put things in there and then you have areas um, to answer that help you get the likelihood and impact uh, determined in a, in a pre-calculated uh, fashion. So it's not that I just look at it and say, well, you know, uh, I heard people are doing fishing, this and that. That's not how you do it. You say, you know, does it impact line of business? Is sensitive in information there? These are like yes and no's or maybe a scale of one to 10 based on, you know, the answers, you know, what kind of, um, who has access to this? If you had access, to this, does this allow you access elsewhere? Those kind of questions are asked um, in the proper framework to then get a ranking numerical value that says, you know, this is a, out of like say a one to five or one to 10 or whatever being, you know, likelihood super high, impact super high, these have to be done. Um, then there's ones that are, you know, impact super low, likelihood high, it doesn't really matter because it, you know, even though it's happening all the time, the impact is so minimal, it's just cost of doing business. And other ones might be, you know, the impact's really high, likelihood is so low and you have other compensating controls in place, you, you don't have to address it yet. And that's kind of how um, the best way to look at these and make sure that they're working. And again, if you use something like COSO, there's others out there. I just use COSO because it's uh, pretty well known. It's free. It's a .org. Um, and, and people understand that uh, framework. So how does an organization, when you, when you consider this framework, when you consider this governance process, how does an organization get policies and procedures into place to address these risks that they identify in this identification and prioritization process, right? And I mean, I mean, quickly and effectively, I guess, is the key. I think we all know, you know, obviously, anyone can write a policy and put a procedure in place, but, you know, we have to be agile in this space, right? So, I mean, considering, are these frameworks conducive to, to, to agility and speed in, in, the, in the governance space and the cybersecurity and risk space? As we said earlier, I think there's a lot of work up front and they're not agile and fast in the beginning. What you're doing is you're going through all your policy procedures, making sure they align to what you want to do as an organization, making sure that they protect what you think you should protect. And I think later we're going to talk a little bit about certifications. So what certifications are you going to do industry-wide? So making sure your policy procedures follow the necessary um, requirements of those certifications. And then bringing a group together, looking at the risks, understanding the risks, looking at the policies, understanding the policies, understanding owners of the policies to make sure that they're reflective of what you're doing. That's a lot of work. And that's, that's, you know, a few months worth of really good work to get it done. Once it's in place, this is very transparent. All the leaders see it. It's coming, you know, you're, you're having a meeting monthly or maybe quarterly as you start to get uh, much better about this. And then you just get a, um, basically a routine going that you're looking at every policy or procedure 
at least on an annual basis. So you stagger them. So you're looking at, a, you know, so many a month, maybe two a month, if you have 24, or, you know, one a month, if you have 12, depending on the size of the organization. And that makes sure that every year you're looking at a policy you're not looking at them all at once. You try to take one at a time or two at a time or three at a time, depending on the size of your organization. And I also assign the policies to specific people. So maybe it's the code of conduct that'll go probably to HR to lead. Uh, maybe it's a privacy uh, policy that'll go to legal. Uh, you know, if it's a business continuity planning disaster recovery, maybe that's my team working with, um, you know, the product team, those kind of things. So you're constantly having these policy procedures looked at. But you're also making sure that people understand them because a lot of times policy procedures are written in the beginning and just put it in the shelf and no one looks at them again. Um, they don't really make sense. They're not updated and they don't really address what you're trying to address. Now, I know it sounds like you're doing a lot of work, but if you come in an organization that doesn't have a policy pr procedure framework playbook, you're just going out every day and you're just taking a guess and doing, you know, you're basically a, like a firefighter. You're just showing up, the, the blaze is going, you're doing what you can to just at least stop it right away. You're not getting a plan yet. And that's not healthy for an organization, especially if someone leaves or is injured. Like if you have something where someone goes on medical leave um, or they, they do leave the, the firm or something like that. Now, how does the next person come in and understand what's going on? You don't. You have to then try to figure it out. It's all tribal knowledge. It doesn't work well. So you and I took the, the CISO certification together a long time ago at Carnegie Mellon, and, and, and you know, we know that they teach the return on security investment, the, how to build a Rossi to different audiences in your organization. So it might be legal, it might be risk, it might be the security guys. So specifically, when you're talking to someone like the chief risk officer and you're presenting a you know, return on security investment presentation to them, what are some of the other advantages that you see in taking a risk-based approach to security other than obviously speaking the language of the business and being able to communicate with them in the right way and get the resources that you need to build an effective defense and depth security posture? Like what, what, do you, well, what else do you see? What are the other advantages? So you and I took the Carnegie Mellon program a while ago, and we're not really teaching uh, a lot of what you explained. Uh, those things are pretty gone. And what, what they're encouraging now is building a risk framework and working with risk. And the same reason, instead of going in and saying, I'm going to present to you my security return on investment, what they're doing is saying, be part of the process with me as we look and identify the risks. We all agree these are the risks and what will it cost to fix it? So instead of saying, I went out with my team and figured this out and here's why you should do it. It's, hey, we all came together. We all agree these are the top risks. Here are risks that impact you directly and other business owners who all feel they want this, right? So you're not going in alone. You're going in with all the business owners at the meeting that you're all part of. You've all agreed these are the top 10, top 100 risks. We all agree that we have to get these done because they're just too important for the business. Then it's just, we are going to fund them. Yeah, so that's really interesting. Do, do they still teach that you're able to quantify risk? It's still taught uh, quantifying risk, but more heading towards this. So you're quantifying the risk through a framework, working with the partners and identifying the cost through the different areas. So like I said, if it's um, maybe a, a, an SDLC process needs to be, uh, be revamped, right? There will be a cost that security might pay for. We might say, okay, we're going to pay for some of the um, automated tool review. Maybe we'll have some type of uh, body that's doing the manual or product, uh, you know, DevOps, something will say, we'll, we'll hire the body in our budget. Um, we'll pay for the tool. We'll do this, but give us guidance. So what happens in that case is you actually have a few people coming together and figuring out the best way to make the budget work, put the bodies where they should be to address the problem. Instead of security saying, here's a problem, I need to go pay for it and get it here. It might not go in security. We might give guidance and tell them what to do. It might be best in another area. So I just had Rick Howard on not too long ago, and we were talking about quantifying risk and, and quantifying your return on security investment and, you know, how you do that. And there was a whole bunch of, we had a whole big discussion on it. Does, does Carnegie Mellon still teach that you can quantify the risk? I know you just talked about quantifying the investment to mitigate the risk, obviously, but, and this is the cost of what it's going to take. But how about the, how about what you would be mitigating as a result of the investment? Well, it, it, they go hand in hand because they all follow the risk register. So the risk okay. is identified in the register. We have a likelihood and impact. So we say, you know, this, we don't have a fire. I'm going to make it very easy. We don't have a firewall. Everything in the internet's coming in blind, right? So we want to put a firewall in place. And so what we'll say is, you know, pretty high likelihood because everything's coming in. We're not, you know, we're not blocking anything. We're not seeing anything. Um, the impact pretty high because someone can come own our boxes. So likelihood impact very high. 
So then we go in and say, okay, well, how much is it going to cost to get a firewall? This much money. Okay, who should run this? We should need to do segregation of duties, all these things. So we'll say, okay, security, maybe IT ops will buy the firewall. They'll implement it. Security will be in charge of the um, ACLs into the firewall, uh, working with product maybe to identify what they, they need and don't need coming in. And then what we'll say is, okay, so we, we said here's the likelihood. The impact was, you know, own servers, outage of business, all this. Since we put the firewalls in, we've had no own servers. We've had no outage of business. Therefore, that's the return on investment because it worked. And this was the cost. The cost was the, the, the actual box that we put in, um, the cost for um, the product person or whoever it is um, who's giving us uh, input on what they can and can't have access to, and then the security team hiring a body to run that. So that would be the cost. Uh, this is this is a very interesting topic. It kind of spilled over into some other things that we had on uh, on some other shows. So we're definitely going to you know have some segments on uh, on this topic in the future. But we've got to take a short break right now. I want to get back to uh, a lot of this uh, in terms of uh, risk and how we implement it in security right after this short break to hear from our sponsors. So don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from Tom Pager after these short messages. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Improve the efficiency and effectiveness of your security operations with DF Lab Security Orchestration, Automation, and Response Technology. Automate threat containment, orchestrate incident response, and measure operational performance with DF Lab's Inkman SOAR platform. Leverage your current security resources to minimize incident resolution time, maximize analyst efficiency, increase the number of incidents handled, and reduce overall risk. Inkman SOAR acts as a force multiplier, enabling your security team to do more with less. Streamline the full incident response lifecycle automation process today. Keep your cyber incidents under control with DF Labs. Visit dflabs.com forward slash TF7 to request a look at Inkman SOAR live in action. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm back with our special guest, the CEO of Bitco, Tom Pagler. So, Tom, we were talking about in the previous segment, you were talking about using risk to enhance security, and now let's focus on what to do with it. Let's talk about how we can help confirm the risk program is working and is helpful to the organization. How do CISOs or executives or even customers know that the risk program is working well in an organization? I think uh, there's a couple things that they want to do there is you want to make sure, as we talked about before, transparency. So all the business owners, everybody see uh, the risk register, how the risks are addressed, um, that we're actually making headway on them. 
then that information should on a monthly, quarterly, whatever basis you decide for your organization, be shared amongst all the executives and the board. Um, so it's, it's very transparent. They can see at any time exactly what you're doing, why you're doing it, and how you're ranking them against each other. Uh, the other thing you can do is, depending on what business you're in, you can share this information with your customers. Obviously, I can say what your top rank risks are, but you share that we have a robust risk register. We have a way of ranking risks and that we are very transparent about it. The executives of the board see this because that's a, a great way for any customer who is relying on you as a third party to trust you and say, okay, they have a pretty robust program in place. If the issues come up, their executives are involved in seeing it as well as their board. So considering that, is there a way that you can like self-certify, you know, certify yourself independently of anyone else, things that you do with like pen testing or red teaming? I think there's two ways you do it. Uh, there's a self-certify and then there's the external certifications. So I recommend if you're running a really robust program, you should be doing red team exercises and pen testing as really for your own uh, information. So what you're doing is you're running it to help you identify and quantify risks. So these are coming in and the idea is, hey, look, come really hit me hard. Tell me what I could be doing wrong. Um, you know, try social engineering me. Try pen testing my you know publicly exposed uh, servers, whatever it be. Um, actually, I'll let you on my network. So we just assume someone's in here. How could you get? Can you jump from one area to another? Like really testing, and I, I recommend that at least on an annual basis uh, for the, the in-depth red team exercises and someone doing all the social engineering, and everything like that. And I think throughout the year, what you should be doing is pen testing. Fish, uh, test fishing on, on employees and training like that. Um, then on the external side, I'd recommend you really think about what industry you're in, who your customers are, and what makes sense for you to go get certified. And this would be the stuff you'd share. And I'll just name a few like, uh, you know, SOC 2, type 1, type 2. Um, pretty good standard to show that, you know, at least you've got um, what's generally uh, needed in industry. Uh, I think you can look, if I'm just operating the U.S., I can do some you know, NIST, FISMA, FedRAMP. These are all kind of uh, U.S. federal government standards. If you're a global uh, firm, I'd look at doing ISO, uh, uh, International Standards Organization uh, 27001, which is the, the security one. And then depending if you're in um, pharmacy, maybe, I mean, I'll say healthcare pharmacy, you look at like HIPAA, uh, CFR 21 Part 11, just different things that are important to your, your organization for your customers. And then what you do is as you get these certifications, you basically can put together a sheet for your customer saying, hey, here's why you should trust my brand, what we do, because we are SOC 2 compliant, we're following ISO framework, um, maybe our cloud is FedRAMP compliant for government use, uh, and since we're in pharma, we follow you know, the HIPAA rules, uh, so you won't lose your HIPAA compliance you're with us. You know, we're BioSafe um, and CFR 21 Part 11 compliant. That's a lot of frameworks that you just went over here. How do we know which one to use for the organization? I mean, when I, you know, I see a lot of these being tossed around and a lot of people say, I use this one or I use that one. Which, how do we know which one's the best? Uh, it's not a best. It's a, what is my organization, what's my industry, and what do they expect? So for me, as, as a um, you know, CSO, I have my own third parties I'm going to use. And I'm going to say, okay, I, you know, I follow the SOC model. I follow ISO, whatever I follow, I'm going to want them to have it. Or maybe I'm not there yet. Maybe I'm working towards ISO, but that's what I want to do. Right. Any, data, any data centers that I might look at, I'll be like, look, they have to be ISO compliant because I'm going to go through the ISO um, framework and I want to make sure they fold in with me. Uh, my a past employer I was with, DocuSign, when I was there, uh, DocuSign is almost everything, right? It's electronic uh, signatures for um, uh, multiple industries. If you go to trust.docusign.com, you can see all the certifications. Pretty much every one I read off, they've done because they have to. They need to work with pharmacies. So pharmacies are uh, going to worry about you know, losing HIPAA compliance. They're going to worry about CFR 21 Part 11, which is the as things are changed that you have record of it. So when we see on the news that there's some contaminated um, products and they identify where they're at, that's because of a very good paper trail. Um, they're ISO because they're global. They follow SOC 2 and actually SOC 1 and SOC 2, type 2 and type 1. Uh, they're, they're following NIST and FISMA to get their FedRAMP certification. So if you go to their site, you can see all that because they need those customers. Um, they're also PCI compliant, level, level 1 as a service provider, level 3 as a merchant. Uh, like my current company, we don't deal with credit cards, so I wouldn't ever look at PCI. I don't need that. 
but you know, I want to look at SOC, uh, SOC 2, uh, SOC 2, type 1, type 2. Those are really good standards right now. Cryptocurrency, the areas are heading. We're not really sure what's needed. So looking at ISO, starting to map towards an ISO framework, kind of seeing what the industry does uh, and making sure that we can do that for our, our customers. Because at some point we're going to be, I mean, we are a third-party vendor to the customer. We have to make sure we're adhering to the standard they are because that's what they're going to require because that's the standard they have. So it's really getting everybody together saying, who are our customers? What do we need to, to make sure our customers understand and, and feel safe about us? And, and it's actually a really easy business case because it's kind of needed in order to affect sales because at some point you can't operate with the federal government if you're not FedRAMP compliant. At some point, they, you know, as a cloud provider, they're just going to say, no, you can't do this anymore. Um, some companies will say, look, you have to be you know, at least have a SOC 2 report or you have to be ISO compliant, then, you know, basically it's really easy to show up because the sales team is saying we need this or we can't sell. Right. I mean, some of these are industry specific, obviously HIPAA is a, is a great example yep. of that, but some of them are not, are non-industry specific, right? Yeah. Again, you have to look at your, your market. So if you're basically a U.S. focused market, maybe you're never going to go global and you only work with the federal government. Like let's say you're a big government contractor. I would probably look at SOC 2, good, good starting ground. And then I'd start uh, mapping towards NIST and FISMA, uh, which is a uh, National Institute of Standards Technology. FISMA is a Federal Information Security Management Association, I think. I'd use off the top of my head. FedRAMP is, uh, is cloud um, uh, certification for government. And FedRAMP is based on NIST and FISMA standards. So for that, I'd probably do SOC 2, uh, type 2, type 1. I would work towards uh, FedRAMP with FISMA and NIST standards because I'm only working with the U.S. government, only doing government contracts. If I'm another company doing similar but globally, I'd probably look at ISO because that's, that's a global standard that most people would follow. I'd still do SOC 2 type 1 and type 2. And I just kind of map ISO back to how it, it works with NIST and FISMA because I'd be like, the U.S. government's just one of my many customers. I think that's really good information for people to know. I don't think people you know, are able to put that together like you just did in a way that's, you know, articulate and easy to understand in terms of how you sort of progress through the different frameworks, what there are, what they mean, you know, some of them are obviously industry specific, some of them might be uh, better for whether you're national, global, or for instance, you know, uh, have a certain product, what kind of product you have. So what do you, I'm anxious to ask you this question, what, what do you think about NIST? I mean, you know the deal, right? You work, you work for a large organization like we did at JPMorgan Chase. Does NIST really offer any value to your organization or is it so basic that it's really more for like credit unions or smaller organizations who don't really have the resources to stand up these advanced cyber sec programs, right? I mean, what's your opinion? So I'm not gonna pick on NIST. What I'm gonna say is I think certifications are, good because they give um, us a way to standardize and I have the minimum. I think it's important to show above and beyond. And as a person who looks at my third parties, I'm like, you know, I want a minimum. I want to see your, you know, maybe your SOC 2, your ISO, whatever it is. And then I also will do an on-site audit if it's sensitive enough and talk to their head of security and say, okay, great. You got this. What do you do beyond that? And everything I described before, makes it so I can, I can basically get any certification. So what, what I think is, I, I kind of break them in two buckets. I feel that the information we talked about in the first sec section, the first segment, is good hygiene to run a security program the best way we can in, in today's world. Fortunately, when you do that, it's really well documented, it has really good policy procedures in place, and it maps really well to what the external um, sort of certifiers and auditors will look at, such as you know those doing SOC, ISO, NIST, PCI, FISMA, FedRAMP, all that. So I think there's value in that because you're doing a very high level exam and showing that I, at minimum follow what the industry expects. So for to your point, the smaller credit unions, all that stuff, but it's not the answer. Again, like I, I kind of mentioned, it's almost a sales tool, right? It's making sure that you can continue to be it's a minimum requirement to be the vendor of these larger organizations or the, the other organizations that, that are giving you their sense of data. And so I really think as long as you put a good framework in place from the beginning that can understand all your risks, your controls, your policy, your procedures, you can adapt very quickly to anything that's needed. And a good example of that is this year with GDPR coming out from Europe. If you're, you know, we don't really know where it's headed. We have an idea it's in place now. We don't kind of know what the future is going to look like. There's not a lot of use cases. We don't know what kind of fines have come down. They're just starting. But if you've got a really good 
policy pr practice in place that you can easily change as in bring the risk council together and say, okay, we have to change this policy right now because it won't, we won't be GDPR compliant or we can get ourselves at risk. Really easy to do that. That's why I think this big risk framework at the base of your, you know, your pyramid is the most important thing because then you can morph to any standard you need easily. Yeah. So as I suspected, I mean, this is a, a small baseline in your foundation here, right? It's just a very, and a place like JP Morgan Chase, it doesn't really mean much to say that you're compliant with this framework. I mean, it really doesn't. But to your point, you know, that's just, that's just the beginning of the conversation. That's where the conversation just starts. Okay. Now, how, you know, now let's, let's see how advanced we can get in terms of the, the cybersecurity program that you put in place. I mean, so in our time, I mean, sorry, George, I'm talking about Chase. Can you imagine if you called someone you were going to work with and you said, do you have these NIST controls in place? And they said, no. I mean, it's just an automatic, okay, they clearly don't have their stuff together. And if they can't get there, they clearly don't have a good foundation to even make it work, right? So it's a good test of is your stuff working? Because to your point, this really puts out some pretty basic to, to those who run big organizations. Right, it's a baseline. It's a baseline. <laughs> yeah. If you're not there, then you're not even on the same planet. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, right? it's like that gives you the baseline, but then you can go dig deeper. And like I said, if you're doing red team exercises and you're doing pen testing and you're doing these things that are beyond that, that aren't really, then when someone comes in as a customer and they say, okay, cool. You show me all this great documentation. You know, let me talk to you. Like, what are you really doing? And you say, Hey, like I run this. Can I see that stuff? Well, honestly, we don't share that. I wouldn't share it with you. I won't share it with anybody else. I can show you that we have it. I can show you that we have sort of, but I don't want you knowing anything because the other customers would be upset. If, you know, I, you would be upset if I share this with other customers, just know we're doing it and, and, and we're, we have a process to fix it. So you can show them high level what you're doing, like, and, and proving that you actually are identifying really big threats and, and ranking them and, and addressing them. We also want to be careful and say, look, I can't share beyond that. Because if I did with you, then I'm sharing with every customer. Do you really, you know, do you want a third party who really shares every big risk they have with everybody? No, you don't. You want to show like, God, they got, they got great hygiene. They, they have a process that works. They're hitting the compliance um, certifications that we want. And they're actually going deeper. And they're showing me they're going deeper and they're addressing it. But they're not giving me, you know, the secret sauce in there because that I don't want to see. Because if I see it, that means my other competitors might be seeing her involved with them. And then, you know, somebody's going to know what's going on. That's good practice, good hygiene. So let me ask you about that. Do you think these compliance certifications means that your organization is secure? I mean, can, can you rest easy? Can you know, can you just hit the tiki bar after you know? <laughs> no. And in certifications, you're like, all right, we're good to go now. That's a, that's a definite no. I don't think, I mean, in, in fairness, I don't think you can ever rest easy, right? I mean, we know security is evolving. You got to be changing. What, where I rest, I, I want to know the certifications are there. Again, like I said, as a baseline, it's just they have good hygiene that they can obtain them. Because if they can't obtain them, I know there's a problem, right? They don't have them, I can't even do business with them. Or if I really need to do business with them, I got to sit down and say, okay, what controls are in place? What's your path to get there? Because maybe they're working on it, right? I really need you to be ISO compliant or I need you to be SOC 2. Where are you at? Well, we're actually, you know, finalizing them. Okay, that's fine. We know it's there because sometimes you're going to, you know, deal with smaller companies who are working toward it. That's fine. Um, but again, what I want to do is understand you know, how do you address things? What's your framework set up? Are you thinking risk? Or are you just thinking security? Are you just firefighters who are just address, you know, addressing it comes in? Are you just doing the, or do you actually have someone who has a strategy in place, who's making sure it's transparent and make sure that the company is heading towards what it will. It's growing properly. It's doing that. That's the kind of stuff that I would look at as someone who's evaluating a third party vendor to work with. Well, now, should we hold over our third-party vendors accountable to the same frameworks and certification programs since you brought it up? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I mean absolutely. So if I, if I go and – so think about it. I, I am a customer to someone. Like even J.P. Morgan Chase, right? Big bank, but they're customers to someone. Someone banks with them. Someone does this. Like if we think of these – you know, anybody is pretty much a customer to somebody, right? And so if I go in and I say, okay, you're, you're amazing. You've done everything. Your frameworks are great. But then they go in and they work with a third party who doesn't meet any of the standards they do, doesn't have this framework in place, but has access to the sensitive data. You're only as good as that weakest link. So the third party vendor program has to be as robust as you do your own stuff. Otherwise you're just, you, you know, you can put this great fortress together, but you have this wide open back door where data is just going out, you know, and being handed to someone on a loading dock, right? That's what you need to look for. So third party vendors need to be held to the same standard. Now, as we said, I can't really go in and look at everything they do. I can talk to them. I can understand their methodology, but the best thing I can do is get certification. So now I feel more comfortable because if they are obtaining these, that means someone went in there and at least looked at it. And if they're, if they're able to like look at DocuSign, go to, you know, uh, as I said, trust.docuSign.com, they've obtained so many of them 
you feel much more comfortable because you're like, you know, there's a lot of people saying, yes, they're SOC 2 compliant. Yes, they're PCI compliant. Yes, they're um, ISO compliant. All this. And if you think about it, they're not doing all those at once. It's not like they get a snapshot and do it right then and they're done. In order to do that, they're constantly being reviewed, right? Because you can't do one. You, you're basically doing one at a time, a little bit of overlap. You can't do them all at once. So I know at any time DocuSign is being reviewed by someone, so I feel very comfortable with it, right? There's, you know, everybody has issues, things going on, but in order to obtain those, they have good hygiene, and they're constantly obtaining these. And so therefore, if I put my critical documents in DocuSign, I feel pretty secure that, I mean, it's safe that they're probably at least doing the minimum that I'm doing. Now, if there's someone who doesn't have any of those and they don't have, you know, the right answer and I put it in there, now it's like, great, I'm ISO compliant, but I put your documents in a non-ISO compliant third party, you know, you just lost the credibility. So I just had Johnny Frazzini on, another former Secret Service, Service agent, uh, like ourselves. And so we were talking about the, the collision of cybersecurity and the insurance markets. And I, I want to ask you what your opinion is on this. So once we identify the risk, we prioritize the risk, we conduct our threat to capability assessments, you know, we determine how, how, how important is it to transfer the residual risks that we're left with after we, you know, input all our controls and all our controls are implemented to, to insurance companies. And how easy is it to quantify that residual risk? to say, okay, this is how much insurance we should get, or because we're specifically talking about risk here, right, and transferring that residual risk someplace else. So I don't think it's easy at all. Uh, I think part of it's because we don't understand the insurance industry that well yet in this area, right? It's still ever-changing. Again, I think having the nice foundation frameworks all that help, uh, both when you're talking to the insurance company directly and also when you're talking throughout the company and saying, how much insurance do we need? I think it's a way to kind of holistically look at something and say, so internally, you'll say, all right, um, here's the likelihood of the impact. Here's what we can do to mitigate. There's still an, you know, there's still uh, an amount of likelihood that we can't mitigate against. The impact would be this. So why don't we try to go insure against that? So we, we feel at least we're holistic. So we think it's, you know, uh, we put controls in place, but it could still happen. And we might suffer with we'll say $25 million worth of damage from something because we try to quantify the best we can. We could say, well, how much can we really afford? Well, we can really afford to pay $10 million. Okay, so we need $15 million in insurance. Now, when I go to the insurance company, the nice thing is I can actually go and show very mature, the controls in place, what we're doing, how we're thinking, so that they feel comfortable. So it can help um, reduce rates. Because, you know, obviously, insurance companies are always looking and saying, uh, you know, you're coming to get insurance. Obviously, everything we're doing is a risk. What we want to do is collect your money and not have to pay out, right? Because that's better for them. So the more that they feel comfortable, the lower your rates are, the better it is. Again, though, it's not an exact science because we could say, you know, we could get the likelihood a little bit off and so we get hit, you know, faster than we thought, or it could be the impact was higher than we thought it would be or lower, right? And maybe we overpaid on insurance and we shouldn't have. I do recommend at some point we should um, uh, get like James Trainer on here who's over at Aon. I've been talking to him about some stuff hypothetically, you know, not even for, for work-wise, just saying how do we, you know, because he's over at Aon doing the insurance stuff. And he's a former FBI, um, you know, cyber, ran the cyber division for them. And it's interesting to talk to him because you know, he sees it more from the insurance side. I see it more from the um, uh, right. secure, you know, the, the vendor side. Right. And these aren't formal conversations. We're not, you know, in business. We're just drinking beers and talking about it. But it's interesting because we're, we're, you know, both sides are evolving and trying to do it right. So they can make a, you know, a living at it and, and reduce risk. And, you know, if someone does get breached and doesn't pay out right, then others will just say, well, why, why even have insurance? So, you know, it's an interesting topic. I think we should explore further. Uh, but I do think there's a lot of work into it. And it's very difficult to figure that one out. Yeah, I mean, it's a good idea because we're going to be talking about cyber insurance on the show a lot. Because, look, you, like you just said, it's problematic in terms of being able to quickly, uh -huh. effectively, really accurately summarize the, and quantify what someone's residual risk is after they deploy all their, all their controls. And then that's what you have to use to actually underwrite the, uh, the, the insurance programs. It's a lot of opportunity there. A lot of opportunity, right, for a lot of people, right? A lot of money to be made. Right? Any, this any, is a business program. <laughs> any, any students listening right now, definitely go into the cybersecurity <laughs> and at least minor. And, That's right. Yep. So, look, if you had to wrap it up from a, a risk perspective, you know, good risk practices lead to good security. How do you summarize it all for us before the last question of the, of the night? Uh, thanks, George. I, I, I think I've, I've said this a few times. I'll do it again. 
Think of it as a pyramid, right? Good risk practices is the base of your pyramid. You can build upon that foundation. It makes it much more stable the bigger the base is. So the more support you have, the more transparency, the better controls you have in place. Even if you're doing something wrong, you're consistently doing it wrong, you can easily adjust that, fix that, right? And then you can just build on top of that. You can do your compliance. You, you can go get those. You can, you can work with um, vendors. You can address the board. You can address the executives. I, I just think it's a very good way to build your foundation. Hey, man. Great having you back on the show. Thanks, George. Always a pleasure to be here. Well, we've run out of time, folks, but before we go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.